I see comments on YouTube all the time ridiculing the idea of Sola Scriptura. Comments like this one from Tradcat77 and this one from Faker29. Who edits these videos? I do? Man, I gotta stop drinking so much caffeine. In any case, seeing comments like these made me want to look into these claims. Is it true that Sola Scriptura didn't exist for the first 1500 years of the church? And if so, would that be a problem for my Protestant faith? Well, I did the work, I've gone on a textual journey to find out why, and today I'm gonna divulge everything that I've discovered. My name is Stephen Cram, and this is my apologies. All right, so first step in this journey is to discuss what Sola Scriptura means. Before we actually dive into does it exist or not, we need to know what we're looking for. And then the second part of this video, we're going to actually look at what Christians believe in the earliest centuries of the church and see does Sola Scriptura exist there? So that's the path for today. One of the surprising challenges of defining Sola Scriptura is the fact that the original reformers never actually defined the words themselves. That came later. The word Sola Scriptura wasn't really used by them. It was something added later on to describe what they taught. And so we have to kind of dive into their writings and the creeds that came from their movements in order to understand and piece together a helpful and holistic definition. So we're going to look at a couple of creeds first and see what we can learn. First, the 39 articles of the Church of England. What does it have to say about Scripture? It says, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. So this article is saying, from the Church of England, is that everything that should be required of you as a Christian is within scripture, either explicitly or implicitly. And if someone comes to you with some additional burden to be laid on you and you can't find it in scripture clearly, you shouldn't take it on yourself. It shouldn't be required of you as a rule of faith or necessary for salvation. That doesn't mean there aren't other things that can be taught. That doesn't mean that everything possible that's true is in scripture, just that everything that is required of any man, as it says. Next, we're going to look at the Westminster Confession, which says a lot. We're only going to look at a small section of it today. We don't have time to go through the whole section that is in regard to Scripture. It's really jam-packed with good stuff. But just this one selection we're looking at today says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So this is saying something really similar. Again, Scripture seems to be sufficient for everything which is necessary for our salvation. You don't need some other tradition or a future prophet to come along and add things to it. That's what's being set up here. So we're getting closer to a definition. And third, what we're going to look at is not a confession, but it's actually just a website called Legionnaire, and it's R.C. Sproul's, the late R.C. Sproul's website, in which he starts to define Sola Scriptura. So we're going to look at that. He says, Sola Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. So again, he's reinforcing the same idea. Everything necessary is taught explicitly or implicitly, meaning Obviously, the Bible isn't a book of doctrinal truths just laid out in order. You have to deduce some things from it. That's included in this concept of sola scriptura. So bringing all this together, what is sola scriptura? After reading into it, I've come to the conclusion that it's an epistemological philosophy for understanding theological truth. Now, that's 
got some big words in it, but epistemology just means the theory of how you know what you know. How do we know things? And are the things that you know true? So it's a way of us as Protestants determining how we can know theological truth. But what does it mean? What's a definition we can look at? Well, the definition we're going to use is actually from this book, The Shape of Sola Scriptura by Keith Matheson. This is a book that I've been reading a lot lately and getting a ton out of it. It's actually a big part of the reason why I'm making this video, because I wanted to synthesize what I've been learning and what I found in church history, put it in writing, and then share it with YouTube. It helps solidify it for me, and it shares it with other people who could use the information. If you're interested, I would definitely suggest getting this book. I wish I got paid to hawk this book online because it's a great one. I would do it anyway, and I'm not getting paid, so I am doing it anyway, obviously. But it provides a really good definition for sola scriptura, and this is what we're going to kind of use going forward. That definition is that scripture is the sole infallible authority for doctrine and practice. Scripture is the sole infallible authority for doctrine and practice. And when I say sole infallible authority, I mean it's the only authority that is infallible. It's the only one. That doesn't mean that there aren't other authorities, right? So you can have creeds and councils. We've already looked at some creeds. Those can be authoritative on your life as a believer. They can inform what you should believe, but they're not infallible the way Scripture is. Scripture alone is set apart in this distinct category of infallible. So you can have creeds that are authoritative, but if you tell me that those creeds can't err, they can't make mistakes, I'm going to say no. If you're going to tell me that there's a modern-day prophet or a church leader that is infallible, that can't make an error— I'm going to say no. That's not what sola scriptura stands for. It means the opposite of that. There may be other authorities, but those authorities are not going to be infallible. So now that we've got this definition of sola scriptura, I realize that it doesn't exactly match up with what I learned as a kid and what I often hear critics arguing against on YouTube and in debates. They tend to argue against this me and my Bible alone in the woods kind of thinking, that that's what sola scriptura means. Not only in this case is church history not helpful. It could actually be detrimental because you're using it to interpret the Bible when what you should be doing is interpreting the Bible yourself and trusting the Holy Spirit to guide you. That's a little bit different than the sola scriptura we just defined. A helpful tool I found in order to explain this better is initially came from a man named Heiko, I think Oberman. Normally I just hear him referred to as Oberman, but he's a Dutch theologian and historian, and he coined the terms tradition one and tradition two to explain, to start to explain the distinction of how people throughout church history have experienced the relationship between scripture and tradition. Tradition two is largely medieval and a Catholic way of viewing that relationship. So we're not really going to talk about that very much, but tradition one is the idea of sola scriptura that we defined. And to quote Matheson, he says, the New Testament was the inscripturation of the apostolic proclamation, and it together with the Old Testament was the sole source of revelation and the only doctrine norm. The scriptures were to be interpreted in and by the church within the hermeneutical content of the regula fide. The regula fide just translates to the rule of faith, and it basically means that it's the way that the church has understood the gospel message and the interpretation of scripture from the very beginning. Think of it as this. We know the early church taught the Apostles' Creed. The Creed is a summary of what the Apostles taught. When we interpret scripture in this tradition one view, we want to use things like the Creed, which are the earliest summaries of the gospel in order as a lens in which we can see scripture and make sure we're interpreting it according to how the apostles originally intended it. But it isn't separate from scripture. It's one tradition coming from the apostles. It's one source. Matheson will explain this further when he says, 
The concept of tradition, when it is used by these fathers, is simply used to designate the body of doctrine which was committed to the church by the Lord and his apostles. Whether through verbal or written communication, the body of doctrine, however, was essentially identical, regardless of how it was communicated. A helpful example to explain how I think about this is if you're a kid and your parents leave you and your siblings at home for the evening. They go out on a date, they want to get some alone time, and they leave you you guys, however many of you there are, alone to fend for yourselves. They might give you some verbal instructions as to how you would act, and to remind you, and to set it in stone, they'll write a note saying, eat dinner at this time, you can find it in the fridge, be nice to each other, so-and-so gets control of the remote or share, whatever the rules are. So the instructions, both verbal and written, are uniform. They represent the one intention of your parents. The best way to settle any disputes that might arise is to look at the written version of what your parents left. The memory of how you've been raised and the memory of what they said before they left might help you interpret the written, but the written is what you would go to in order to settle any dispute between rival siblings. Oh, so Oberman's distinction brings up the idea of tradition one, which is what we're saying is sola scriptura. But Alistair McGrath, another theologian and historian, he added his own distinction in addition to Oberman's two. He added in tradition zero, which you might guess is that tradition has no place, zero tradition in the life of the church. We shouldn't look to it at all. And whereas tradition one makes tradition a helpful tool, not infallible, but helpful in interpreting scripture, tradition zero says you shouldn't use it at all. And in fact, it might be detrimental to do so. Tradition zero is the me and my Bible alone in the woods view. It is not the traditional reformation view of sola scriptura. Matheson writes, those who advocate tradition zero under the banner of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the slogan sola scriptura do so either out of ignorance or dishonesty. Those who critique the Reformation doctrine of Sola Scriptura by equating it with Tradition Zero create an easily demolished straw man. The position of the classical ref reformers and their heirs was and is Tradition One. So to summarize this first section, answering the question, what is Sola Scriptura? We have a definition that Sola Scriptura is the sole infallible authority for doctrine and practice within the church. And we have the distinction that scripture and tradition are not in conflict, they're one source together. Tradition is a helpful hermeneutic in order to interpret the scripture, which is infallible. We're not discounting tradition altogether, which would be tradition zero. So from now on, as we look at church history and how we start to dive into did it exist and answer the critique that it didn't exist for the first 1500 years, as we start to learn about this, I'm going to try to call it Tradition One Sola Scriptura. And I know that it's clunky, but it's helpful for me. Having been raised in a context where Tradition Zero was the norm, I need to remind myself what we're talking about here is not the abolishment of tradition. We're talking about Tradition One Sola Scriptura, not Tradition Zero Sola Scriptura. All right, so finally, we're starting to look into the claim. How would we examine a claim like no Christian believed in Sola Scriptura for the first 1500 years of the church? How do we do that? Well, we need to first recognize that this is a historical claim. So we're going to be looking at written documents in history. And we need to also recognize that this is, in its very essence, an argument from silence. An argument from silence is a conclusion that is based on the absence of statements in historical documents rather than their presence. They're arguing from the absence of Sola Scriptura in church history. And I want to be careful here because I hear arguments from silence used in YouTube all the time. That is entirely an argument from silence. Argument from silence. Arguments from silence. Arguments from silence. As if it's this hammer that shuts down the argument. It's frankly overused and it, I think it needs to stop because just because you use just because you say it's an argument from silence doesn't mean that the argument is invalid. An argument from silence is often the only the first step 
in establishing the true argument of what the person believes. For example, have you heard the trend on the internet right now that men always think of the Roman Empire basically every day? Well, here's your daily reminder because we're going to talk about Julius Caesar. If someone told you that Julius Caesar's favorite food was pizza, you would have to look at the evidence, the written accounts left by him and contemporaries in order to help determine whether or not that was true. If you do see it written somewhere that his favorite food was pizza, you might agree and say, okay, that makes sense. If it's not written there, at the very worst, you have no evidence at all that his favorite food was pizza, but perhaps you also find counter evidence that can be provided. In that case, the first step is establishing nowhere does it say Julius Caesar, his favorite food was pizza. In addition, we have counter evidence that his favorite food was lamb chops, or we have counter evidence that pizza wasn't even invented yet. In this situation, the argument from silence informing the arguer that it doesn't say anywhere that Julius Caesar's favorite food was pizza is the first step in establishing the further argument. And it's important to say it doesn't say anywhere that he his favorite food is pizza. And it's an important thing to establish because if that isn't true, then there's no sense in the counter arguments because maybe it does say somewhere that his favorite food is pizza and you're leaving that evidence out. It's important to establish that argument from silence in order to bring in the counter arguments afterwards. So in that way, a argument from silence could be helpful. And I understand I'm helping build up the argument against sola scriptura here, saying just because it's an argument for silence doesn't mean it's an invalid argument against Protestants, but it does mean we need to look further. As a Protestant, how do I address this argument from silence that's being thrust upon us? Well, in order to prepare for this, I actually read an article by Jimmy Aiken, who is a Catholic, an incredibly intelligent guy, and someone who I enjoy listening to on YouTube. And he wrote an article in Catholic Answers that actually is kind of against Protestants using the argument from silence, which we already talked about, I think is overused on YouTube. But he gives us two things I think we should recognize when, as we're arguing against an argument from silence. First is terminology changes over time. So we don't expect, in this case, the early Christians to say, I believe sola scriptura. We don't expect them to use those words or anything like that. Instead, what Aiken says is the question would not be whether these terms are found, the term being sola scriptura in this case, but whether they reflect concepts that are. So do we see people describing our definition in their writings? Do we see people applying our definition in the way they're interpreting scripture and tradition? Just because, ter just because terminology changes doesn't mean they didn't believe it, and we need to look for those clues. Secondly, it could be the case that the sources do mention the facts in question, either explicitly or implicitly, but it hasn't been recognized by the person making the argument from silence. So maybe Caesar said he loves pizza more than any other food, but the person arguing against that says, that doesn't mean it's his favorite. They're kind of discounting that evidence. Or maybe he wrote that down in a really obscure note to his mom, and it's something that the arguer hasn't read before. In those cases, you could bring that evidence to light and say, see, he isn't silent after all in the matter. So that's what we're looking for. I know it's a lot. We're looking for tradition one, sola scriptura, we're, and we're looking with the understanding that we don't need those exact words, but rather the concepts. And we want to see if that idea of sola scriptura, tradition one, is being written about. Let's examine the evidence. First of all, people forget that Bible is church history, the earliest church history, in fact. It was written by early Christians, and it is a matter of history. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this passage gives us from Paul's mouth to Timothy, the scripture has the unique attribute of being breathed out by God. For, and, and it's sufficient for equipping the saints to do all of these good things. It seems to leave out that there is any other source of authority that you need to bring in in addition 
in order to give you a life that rightly follows God. It's sufficient. If your college professor told you that all you need to do to ace the test is to look at what's in the textbook, the textbook is sufficient for you to ace the test. And then when the test comes around, you see a bunch of questions that you'd only know the answer to if you really studied his slides and it wasn't present in the textbook, then you would say, you lied. The textbook wasn't sufficient for this test. I needed to also look at the slides. So as we're looking at Paul establishing the sufficiency of scripture, he's putting it as a standalone thing that scripture is sufficient for equipping the believer. Next, we're going to look at Clement of Alexandria, who's alive from around 150 to 215. He said, But those who are ready to toil in the most excellent pursuits will not desist from the search after truth till they get the demonstration from the scripture themselves. Similar to Paul, he's putting scripture in this unique place of establishing truth. He doesn't give any other locations we should go to, but the scripture itself, and that we shouldn't actually stop searching for truth until we find it in scripture. Next, we have Hippolytus, who lived from 170 to 236. He said, There is, brethren, one God, the knowledge of whom we gain from the holy scriptures and from no other source. For just as a man, if he wishes to be skilled in the wisdom of this world, will find himself unable to get it at any other way than by mastering the dogmas of philosophers, so all of us who wish, who wish to practice piety will be unable to learn its practices from any other quarter than the oracles of God. Whatever things, then, the Holy Scriptures declare, at these let us look, and whatsoever things they teach, these let us learn. I don't know how you can be more clear that there is one source of infallible truth than to repeat over and over again from no other source. If you look anywhere else, he will find him. If, if you're a person looking anywhere else, you'll find yourself unable to get it any other way. This idea of being repeated over and over again by Hippolytus here that there is one source of truth for the believer, and that is scripture. Next, we have Cyril of Jerusalem, who lived a little bit later from 315 to 384. We're going to look at two different quotes from here from his catechetical lectures. This idea of sola scriptura, I argue, is is sprinkled all throughout his catechetical lectures, but in two specific points, one of which I stumbled over on accident because I looked at the wrong reference in doing my research. He says, Neither today will we use the subtleties of men, for that is unprofitable, but merely call to mind what comes from the divine scriptures, for this is the safest course. The safest course for determining is not the minds of men, even Christian men. It's the scriptures. That's what he's looking to in his catechetical lectures. That's from lecture 17. And if we look at lecture four, which was the one I was trying to find when I stumbled across lecture 17, he says, For concerning the divine and holy mysteries of the faith, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the holy scriptures, nor must we be drawn aside by mere plausibility and artifices of speech. Even to me, who tell you these things, give not absolute credence unless thou receive the proof of these things which I announce from the divine scriptures. For this salvation which we believe depends not on ingenious reasoning, but on the demonstration of the holy scriptures. I think this one's a great example of he is a person in authority. He's delivering these lectures to catechumens who want to be brought into the church. He's clearly their spiritual authority, but he subverts himself. He puts himself below holy scripture and says, even me, if I say something that you don't find in scripture, don't believe it. Scripture is the first and primary source. It's the only infallible source for us. But what about someone like Tertullian, you might ask, who speaks very highly of Scripture and the regula fide or the rule of faith? How do we interpret that when we see also this idea of Scripture alone being sufficient and Scripture alone being the source we should go to for all truth? There are examples of Tradition 1, Sola Scriptura, within the writings of Tertullian. And Matheson, I think, summarizes Tertullian's whole thought 
because admittedly, he does talk about tradition a ton. So Matheson summarizes this in his book by saying, As in the case of Irenaeus, for Tertullian, the scriptures are in no way subordinated to this rule of faith. It is the scriptures, according to Tertullian, that indeed furnish us with our rule of faith. And that's a quotation from his own writings. But it is the rule of faith that is the hermeneutical context for a proper interpretation of scripture, because both apostolic scriptures and the apostolic rule of faith have as their source the apostles. They are mutually reciprocal and indivisible for Tertullian. So when you hear all these quotes about scripture being sufficient and the sole source of truth for the Christian, and then you hear Tertullian talking about how tradition has been handed down to us. These two things aren't in conflict, and they're not two sources. They're one divine and apostolic truth being given down the line. And as I said, there are places where Tertullian talks about this tradition, one sola scriptura, in his own words. And in one of his writings, which I'll, I'll pop up on the screen, he specifically describes this rule of faith or this tradition that he's talking about so much. And what he describes is clearly not another source. What it looks like is simply the Apostles' Creed, which, as Matheson says, can be brought from Scripture. It's something that you can get by reading Scripture, but it's a helpful context through which Christians throughout the ages can read Scripture and understand, hey, this is the context. The Apostles' Creed kind of sets boundaries for us with which if we go outside of those boundaries, when we interpret Scripture, we'd be diving into heresy. These are just a few examples. There are more even in this book, but we do see the idea of Tradition 1, Sola Scriptura, found in the early church. And again, this is the idea that Scripture and Tradition are together one source of the apostolic teaching, and scripture is unique in its authority. It's unique in its infallibility to teach us the truth of the apostles. Tradition is a hermeneutic through which we can make sure we're understanding scripture correctly. So you might be thinking at this point, ah, Stephen, you're just cherry-picking quotations. Well, I am picking out quotations, but that's not really a matter of argument. Everyone has to pick quotations. It would be impractical for me to read through the entire text of all of these different people in this YouTube video and try to dive into all of it. I did it in one video, and that was just one text, Origin on Prayer. I couldn't have done it for all of these things. That would have been ridiculous. I have to pick out quotes. The question you should be asking is not whether I've cherry-picked quotes, picked out quotes, but rather, do my quotes fit the context that we're talking about? Am I taking quotes out of context in order to prove something that these writers don't actually believe? And for that, look at the context, read what they're saying. And I would say in the context, no, I'm not pulling them out of context. This is what these people are actually saying. This is what they actually believe. Another thing you might be thinking is that it's fine that you set up this tradition one sola scriptura and you made it super specific, but that's not what most people believe within Protestant circles. And to that, I say you actually might have a point. I can speak to my own context of American evangelicalism. We've gotten so far away in many ways from the original view of Sola Scriptura. I've had pastors myself advocate for a Tradition Zero view and basically say that we should abandon church history and read Scripture on our own and interpret it within a modern context. And this is beyond unhelpful. This is actually dangerous. It's not that church history is a dangerous hermeneutic. This idea that church history doesn't matter creates a dangerous hermeneutic for us. And to back this up, one final view from the summary that Matheson provides for the first section of his book, he says, We must insist that by virtue of its absolutely unique character as the inspired word of the living God, Scripture is the sole infallible authority for doctrine and practice. And we must also insist that Scripture is to be interpreted within the hermeneutical boundaries of the apostolic rule of faith in and by the communion of saints. 
So we need to make sure we understand that scripture is infallible and unique, but we need to also understand that that tradition is an important hermeneutic for us to interpret scripture through. We can't throw out tradition altogether, and we shouldn't make tradition something that is co-equal with scripture. Both of these are problems for us if we fall into them. So what I've gotten through this study is the understanding that tradition one sola scriptura does exist in the early church, and it is the common understanding of how tradition and scripture relate. But also, many modern Protestants and even pastors misunderstand what sola scriptura means. My hope is that through this video and further conversations, we can bring awareness that we're slipping away from the traditional view of sola scriptura, and we need to return to it. My name is Stephen Cram, and this is my apologies. Thank you.